I'm Poppy Okocha. Right now, I'm at home in Devon where I grow, forage and cook with consideration for the land around me. When it comes to gardening and growing, particularly food, I believe there's so much more to be gained than just nutrition. Growing brings us community, health and it connects us to our cultures and heritages more closely. Whether you have your own plot, a community allotment or the tiniest window box, there's nothing quite as rewarding as growing and eating your own food. Yet human connection with the land has evolved deeply over the centuries. And like many growers reflecting upon the current crisis of climate change, food shortage and extreme conditions, I'm keen to understand what practices our ancestors may have held that could help us today. Intensive industrial farming has fed many of us in the last couple of centuries. But on the other hand, it's wrecked our soils, created dangerously unstable monocultures and limited our once diverse diets. What's more, it's rooted in an ideology that allows exploitation and depletion of resources of indigenous communities around the world, and has distanced so many of us from the simple connection to land that comes with understanding and valuing nature and how it provides for us. To me, we all deserve the opportunity to have a meaningful relationship to land and place, along with access to nutrient-dense food. We can support the land as it supports us and seek a fairer, more equitable food system for all. So today I hope you'll join me on an exploration of modern agriculture and the many other lives and livelihoods that could offer us hope for better food for the benefit of our planet and people. This is Unearthed, Journeys into the Future of Food from Royal Botanic Gardens, Kew. At a high point of Wakehurst, Kew's wild botanic garden in Sussex, the bones of a tree reach out above the sun-baked summer earth. Here on this small hill, a tilted table frame leads up its trunk, punctuated with explosively colourful pockets of fruiting plants. There are strawberries, tomatoes, herbs, and across the dusty earth, shapes and colours refract the bright June sunlight. Children step from one sandy mirage to the next, occasionally looking up at the colourful discs in the branches above. There is a journey here, from fruit to seed to plate. This is artist Helen Law's Seed Feast installation, and it's part of Nourish Wakehurst's summer programme. It's inspired by what she learned in the Millennium Seed Bank and research that Kew scientists have been undertaking in countries like Georgia and Armenia. I do try and eat organic and I don't eat fast food. It's cooked, you know, fresh food. I tend to grow food. I do grow tomatoes and French beans. I don't grow vegetables myself, but I have lots of friends that do. A lot of people do beans and courgettes and onions and something that that's just brings joy, actually, to people, doesn't it? Unfortunately, I don't feel people are as connected now to, to where the food is sourced from and how it's sourced. I think you go into large supermarkets and you see this fresh produce on the shelf all looking exactly the same, no irregularities. Whereas in the real world, if you grow it yourself, you'll notice there's, there's all different shapes and sizes. When I was a little girl, my mum used to go out potato picking to earn money and I used to go with her. So we all knew where they came from. 
I do lots of walking. I belong to two walking groups, so I see farms and I see the farmers out working, doing the harvesting, etc., etc. But no, I don't know anybody personally. That's and true. I do believe passionately that the soil actually helps the nutrition of the food that we actually get, and this is one of the reasons why, sadly, modern-day farming is making us malnourished, which is a tragedy, really. I'm Helen Law. I'm an artist. I work as a sculptor and I also do painting and various other things. I've made an installation. We're in Wakehurst, and as you wander past the mansion into the gardens, there is my installation, which I put in a few weeks ago, and it's on the top of a mound. So you can see it from over the bushes from a little bit further away. But as you approach the mound, you have steps that you can go up. And as you come up to the installation, which is constructed out of oak, there's a table. It's an expansive piece it shoots up from the ground with these colours on top it's almost like dead wood creating new life and the plants are thrusting through the table bursting with life and energy and fruit and the shadows on the ground are sort of bearing witness to the seeds that are there in the air where all our fruit and veg comes from and they're coloured seeds they've been made in response to the x-rays of seeds that I was shown from the Caucasus and they are all hand-painted and the light shines down onto the table and the ground and creates coloured reflections and you can walk through it and if you do it shines on your clothes, it gets on your arms, it's a rather immersive experience and the whole thing represents a cycle of seeds to the table to the ground and back up again. I was taken into the seed bank. I went right down into the very core of it where all the seeds are kept. It was absolutely fascinating and such a, a major and important undertaking. And I really, through reading through a lot of the science to do with the, the research, I understand the importance of conserving these seeds and how it's not always what you think. It's not always about something just being overused it can also be things just going out of favor and then not being saved and we just need to protect and make sure we've got enough variety in our seed bank so that if we have a drought we've got the right seeds of course x-ray is black and white so i had to be an artist i had to be imaginative and a photographer who had done some work here and had x-rayed seeds and then colored them so they weren't realistic colors but they were so beautiful and i felt quite inspired by that to have a freedom have a free hand to bring some color into this and also to enhance the visitor's experience as well I want the power of the colour and the immersion in the colour to be uplifting, to be joyful, and the table with the fruit and food growing through it, which is quite quirky. I want it to make people smile and to think a little bit about how our food comes to the table. It's just to get people to think about where their food comes from, that they are plants and, you know, it's not just from the UK, it actually originates from the wild and sometimes quite far-flung areas from the wild. My name is Aisha Farouk and I'm the Conservation Partnership Coordinator for the Millennium Seed Bank Partnership. With global urbanisation rising, more people are moving into cities because essentially that's where you know, the work is. 
Our connection to kind of the natural world is not as strong as it used to be. But saying that, there are still a lot of communities who still live in the more rural areas, sometimes in very isolated areas, and they still do rely on the natural commodities and the natural world for their everyday life and also for their livelihoods. They're foraging and they're collecting wild berries and wild fruits and herbs to sell in, in marketplaces. And they're finding more and more species being lost and more of their lands being converted and climate change affecting fruiting seasons and flowering seasons and essentially shifts in populations. They're finding it very difficult to find the level of production and the, and the species that they used to rely on. We have a very long-term relationship with our collaborators, the National Botanic Garden in Georgia, the Institute of Botany in Georgia, and also the Institute of Botany and Nature Heritage. We worked with the institutions and also the local communities on the ground to identify some of these species that they find important for their livelihoods, also important culturally for them. The link with the local communities and the wild plants is still quite strong, both for their diets, for the medicines, and also for their culture. It still excites me seeing things thriving in such extreme environments, high altitude, really dry, lowlands, and also meeting the people. Like The people are absolutely amazing. They're so friendly, they're so accommodating, and they're so knowledgeable. And just sitting and listening to my collaborators in the institutions, sitting and listening to the nonas in, in the villages and them showing you how they prepare, how they preserve, how they go through really harsh winters in such an isolated community is just absolutely kind of mind-boggling and really, really great. We did a survey to understand what the community understood essentially about threatened species or the term red listing, IUCN threats and things. Most of them knew what they were. Some of them understood the importance of conservation. There were some that were very much like, oh, you know, is this a, a bit of a drag because it means that we can't touch it anymore and things like this as a negative sense. So there was a little bit of kind of misunderstanding in terms of, you know, what we were there for. but. Again, this is a, another amazing thing about working with local institutions. They can speak the language and they can explain a little bit more eloquently than I can really about the importance of it. And they were extremely accommodating. I mean, they were fantastic to work with. They opened up their community, their homes, their minds and their hearts essentially to us. And they were really happy to know that we were interested. I think that was the thing. It was just, they knew themselves how important these species are. They know themselves how important the landscape is for themselves. Aisha hopes that by studying some of the 122 nut and fruit species the team have selected in the Caucasus, we'll be able to understand more about resistance and tolerance, and perhaps seek alternatives that can be stronger in future climates. As she points out, climate change is making a traditional way of life and relationship with these plants increasingly strained, as the communities seek to use their age-old resources in a way that is sustainable today. But not only is local and indigenous plant knowledge a hugely important property for these cultures, 
It's a fundamental way of life and subsistence for many economies too. Climate change and pressures of international food supply chains are putting some of these traditions under threat. My partner and I, Stephen, and I have been coffee nerds for years. We'd always enjoyed drinking what we thought was better coffee until we started digging into it and really understood that you know, what's often offered out there as mass market coffee just is kind of unappealing. The reality is that great coffee does taste much, much better. Most people can tell the difference. But the problem is that the people that grow it and produce it are the most marginalised in, in the supply chains. I'm Jeremy Tours. I'm co-founder of Union Hand Roasted Coffee. When we wanted to go out and understand what coffee farming was about, went out on a busman's holiday out to Central America. We did this in July 2000. And although we expected to see, you know, beautiful mountains and wonderful coffee trees growing and indigenous communities producing coffee, what we saw was a tale of poverty and destitution. Third, fourth generation families growing coffee were losing their land. They couldn't afford to make the payments. They couldn't afford to send their kids to school. Why? Because the market, which is a commodity-priced market, varies all the time. So farmers, A, never know what they're going to get for their crop next year, so how do they know if they can afford to invest anything in it? And B, most years, if you look back over the last 50 to 100 years, the price of coffee hasn't really met the cost of production with any meaningful profit level. We are sitting just at the end of the palm house, surrounded by all sorts of greenery. It's nice and warm in here on a bit of an overcast day. Would you tell me a little bit about the founding of Union Hand Roasted Coffee? Our view is we love coffee. We want to roast coffee and we want to sell coffee. But as a roaster, we're right there in the middle between the growers over one shoulder and the people who drink it on the other. So the idea of Union Hand Roasted Coffee being a bridge or a partnership was if we can share the ideas about what people in the consuming countries value then the producers can optimise what they do towards that. And also in the other direction, we can share some of the stories and the challenges that producers face to highlight those amongst consumers so they can move to understand why it's worth paying a little bit more. A, because it tastes good, but B, because it helps to guarantee the future of great tasting coffee. Yeah, this is really interesting. I really like how you're connecting enjoyment and satisfaction of the consumer to the well-being and the ability to thrive of the producer and how that's, you know, it's so linked. <laughs> we get good coffee out of people having a good time or a better time. A better time. Yeah. You know, we all spend a certain amount of time worrying about the basics in life. Health, food, shelter. If you can cover those off then you've got time to think about how am I going to look after my kids or improve their outcome for the next generation? How am I going to use what I can grow, what I can sell to do that? So it changes the dynamic. But it has to be linked to that issue about great quality. Mm, so then it becomes a real story of empowerment. 
Absolutely. Yeah. And I suppose in light of you being this kind of bridge between the story of the production and the story of consumption, it would be really interesting to hear a bit about how coffee plays an incredibly important role in the livelihoods of people in Ethiopia. I think that's something so many of us don't understand at all. We have to value that, that place, that location. Ethiopia is the birthplace of one of the main varieties of coffee that we drink today. So I'm sure many people are familiar with Arabica and Robusta. So Robusta is more temperature resistant. It doesn't mind hot climates. It's very high yielding. It grows at low to moderate altitudes on mountain conditions. Arabica is a much trickier beast. We only use Arabica coffee because it is so much better and cleaner tasting. So Arabica is the important crop that came from Ethiopia and is the majority output of Ethiopia. It's important because we source from a particular area in Ethiopia in the west where the last natural forests exist and these are where we find still wild populations of coffee. So Ethiopia is important not only as a possible future resource for genetic material that help us adapt as we go through climate change and the other challenges we have but also because it has a unique character. Ethiopia has never allowed the importation of seeds or varieties from other countries so any of the coffees that are exported from there are almost more true to their locale than any other coffee from around the world and that gives us a really unique sort of set of flavour profiles that we can get from there. And the coffee in Ethiopia is grown by millions, 15 million or so people, not on big farms or big estates, but mostly on what we call coffee gardens. These are smallholder farmers. They grow vegetables. They may raise a small number of livestock, but they're only cash crop where they get a meaningful sort of payment at any point during the year is from their coffee. Most smallholder households will earn around 500 to 1500 burr a year, which is about 300 to 500 dollars a year. So that's the main sort of level of income for the household. Here in the Palm House, we are sitting below Coffee Arabica. Why is this particular variety so special and important in the face of climate change? Arabica is a, a, a delicate plant. I mean, it grows in mountain conditions, in temperate zones, but it has a very sensitive upper limit to temperature. Now, we've seen, even in our travels over the last 20 years, how smallholder farmers are saying, ah, oh, you know, the weather is different to when my father or my grandfather was farming. As we're seeing the effects of climate change in the temperate zones, the average temperatures are moving up, and it's getting to a point where the coffee, the Arabica trees are becoming more stressed, and through getting stressed, they're more susceptible to other diseases, other warm environments, particularly if it comes with increased humidity, also allow the propagation of other fungal issues like coffee leaf rust. Yeah, it's really interesting, these pressures that all foods that we consume, teas that we drink, coffees that we drink, mm. are 
having to face and I think that so often it's not something we consider day to day you know the very real impact that the changing climate has on plants that are accustomed to a certain range. And this is why the the wild resources of the natural forest that we still find in places around the world are so important because they are the natural sink of, of different genetic material. Union's Yayu Wild Forest Coffee is grown by farmers and smallholders living in a biologically important protected area of forests. But in order to preserve the trees here whilst working the forest's natural coffee resources, they developed a premium coffee market that allows farmers to have a share in better price. In this way, local coffee farmers are able to sustainably use natural resources while contributing to the area's conservation. This kind of sustainable use scheme is a great way of aligning global conservation initiatives of genetically important plants with the rights and traditions of local communities. Next, we're going to hear how one Malagasy community overcame the problem of their natural food resources running out. Their hungry season, the season where food supplies are depleted ahead of the next harvest, falls between January and March. At this time of year, they must rely on previously harvested produce for food, as the tubers of a major wild food source are not yet ripe. My name is Mamtina Rajona. I have a PhD on botany. I'm working at Madagascar Conservation Mission Centre since 2015. And uh, I'm charged on the yams project. Yams is very important food for Malagasy people, mostly during the hungry season. And it is very helpful for them to have techniques for growing yams and for conserving yams for food and for uh, increasing their livelihoods, in fact, because when they grow yams, they can sell it for money. This technique is very important for communities. Communities have no more land for the agriculture and they try to destroy the forest for growing some crops. It's like um, slash and burn. This uh, kind of uh, practice can disturb a yams population in the forest. So it have deforestation in Madagascar and we lose most of the time, the population of edible yams that they use during the angry season. That is uh, the important things which pushed me to work on this yams project. We have currently about uh, 45 wild yam species, but three of them are poisonous. The remaining uh, species are edible. It has a lot of water inside used by the people in the south and the west of Madagascar. Even for cooking rice, they use that for cooking rice. Traditionally, communities go to the forest for um, extracting yams and uh, they go not very deep in the forest. When the yams decline, the communities uh, furious sometimes because they need to go very far to find tubers for food. And they make a long time for digging one tubers of yams. It's about one hour for getting uh, one tubers of yams, wild yams. 
it is very painful for them. But with new techniques for growing yams in the field, they can harvest about uh, 30 kilos per uh, half an hour. So they don't need to go far to find the yams because the field is uh, close to their home. They prefer wild yams than the cultivated one because it is very tasty. The wild yams is tasty. It seems that the taste is not similar between the cultivated one and the wild yams. We train the communities on the techniques to grow wild yams because, you know, traditionally, communities said that growing wild yams in the field is a kind of taboo for them at the beginning. And it is a kind of challenge for us. Just few of the communities accepted to work with us. But when we grow yams in the nursery, after two weeks, they accepted to work with me because it's, it's work. It is a big, big oof for us <laughs> because they, they, they change their habits. They are happy to have a food available near their house, but not going to the forest very far. When they are convinced on the yams cultivation, they grow very well and they grow a lot of tubers. At the end, they couldn't eat all of their yield. <laughs> we try to find another way for selling their production. So we created cooperatives and platforms to sell the production from the communities and uh, they get money uh, after that. During the, the monitoring that we have during the project, the number of people going to the forest for yams exploitation reduced. We try to collect also the number of yams. This number of female plants improved. Uh, that means also that the yams population is become uh, stabilized in the, the, in the forest. From fair prices for producers in Ethiopia to conservation and sustainable use in Madagascar, we now move on to Chile, where one farming family learned the hard way that how we produce crops must be future-proofed against frightening climate change conditions. I'm Abby Rose. I'm a farmer, soil advocate, physicist. I definitely have not always been involved in farming. And I happened to grow up in Cheshire, so Northern England and I was living opposite a field of cows and sheep. And I remember distinctly thinking like, ooh, cows and sheep are really ugly and farming looks really boring. <laughs> I studied physics at university and then in that time, my parents moved to Chile and started farming. Obviously that was quite radical <laughs> and a bit of a shock to me. But then after university, I spent some time on the farm, extended amount of time on the farm. I wouldn't say that I immediately fell in love, but I started to realize that actually farming was a whole world of exploration, discovery. It was science in action in many ways. It's art in action. They did some research and they started to plant some olives. And also we already had vines on the land and there's already like lots of fruit trees and vegetables and all that kind of stuff for feeding ourselves. And then the farm has over 200 hectares of just native trees, creeks left 
I would call that our water reserve, essentially, because it's all collecting water, all, you know, in the rainy season, water's being trickled down those trees into that soil, and then it goes in and our springs come out of the hillsides. I had the realization that, you know, whatever happened, the decisions we were making on our farm, you know, which is just one small bit of land on the earth, those decisions actually were highly impactful to everyone around us. Little everyday decisions that farmers make affect all of us much more than we realize. In January 2017, when I was on the farm in Chile, we had extremely high temperatures. It hadn't rained very much, like persistent years of drought, really. And then these fires just started everywhere. I mean, we have fires every year in Chile, but this was different than I'd ever experienced before. And the fires just kept raging. You live in shrouds of smoke when it's 40 degrees and you can't see where the fires are coming from. And there's very little on the ground information because you know from satellite, you can't see anything anyway. So here we were on this farm in remote Chile, just desperately every day checking, trying to figure out from Twitter, from Facebook, where's the fire got to the 30th of January. We actually left the farm by night and the fire came through in the night and it burned the whole of our farm. All 8,000 olive trees burned and all the vineyards burned. And it was, yeah, an insane, very devastating, very black landscape to come back to the next morning. It was really horrifying. And, and not just that, like all of our water systems, unfortunately, they'd been in plastic tubing above ground, so they were all burned as well. And so it was just, it, was, it felt like starting again, is the truth. Those olive trees were just coming into their first year of commercial harvest, so they were just at 10 years old. We recognized a lot from that situation because the reality is that as we've seen in California, Australia, Portugal, Italy, super fires are becoming a thing. You know, they're a phenomenon almost certainly due to climatic conditions changing and also due to human practices changing. How do we build a fire-friendly farm was essentially the question we asked after that because you could imagine, okay, you know, we need fire breaks. They need to be a hundred meters wide around the whole farm. We need to have all concrete roads. It just didn't make sense to us. And it's not really where we want to live. So we took another decision, which is like, how can we have our farm be more resilient when the next fire does come? And some of that looks like planting, you know, rather than having wood fences all around, we planted succulents along the border. The succulents, the agave and the cactus, they grow taller and taller so that if the fire comes through, you don't completely lose all of your borders, making sure that the vegetable gardens and the water area, you know, our key water resources are very well protected in a fire and then branching out and having different segments that we can have pathways for the fire to go around and through. And also it's about recognizing, can we have some annual crops as well as perennial crops. And I guess the final thing, and this is maybe the most important thing, was actually to focus on how can we hold more moisture on the farm for longer in the year. That's where the soil health journey really, you know, got into full swing. And that's when I finally convinced my dad to introduce some animals onto the land. So we got some sheep. <laughs> That's when I began to understand that soil is alive. 
And that is literally the most mind-blowing moment of my life. Because when you start to recognize that actually, you know, in one handful of soil, there's more living microorganisms than there are people on the planet. Then I think that's when you do start to really recognize the possibility of abundance and flourishing and regeneration that just isn't accessible if you're not recognizing this living soil system. The majority of farming practices today, or if we were to call it chemical farming or conventional farming, is all about adding chemistry to the soil, which has the unfortunate adverse effect of killing the microorganisms in the soil. And that is the context within which most farming today works. And also there's often intensive plowing involved, which is also breaking up all the fungal pathways. So regenerative farming, the focus first on building soil health, it's not simple, <laughs> but there are some pretty simple principles that allow you to make decisions day to day to start building soil health. And those principles are a diverse set of plants in your soil, you want to reduce chemical use, you want to reduce plowing or tillage, no bare soil, and then having a living root in the soil. And that's because a key way that soil biology is fed, you know, if you think about all these living pathways and living organisms below our feet, they need to be fed. We can't just starve them. And if the soil is bare, there's actually very little way for them to be fed. The way they're fed is through the plants photosynthesizing and you wanna ideally add animals into the system. It works very well to build soil health, and it also is better for the health of the animals generally, because they don't get parasite buildup and all this stuff. Yeah, we've seen that since we've had the animals moving around, the plants between the trees, they are actually just native grasses and, and weeds essentially, they have started to stay green almost a month and a half longer than they used to. Exploring how our soils can be healthier with different farming practices is an exciting way of encouraging thriving food plants and diverse ecosystems. Abby's even developed an app to help people try this out on their own farms, and maybe you can too whether it's at home, on your own veg patch, or community garden, or even further afield. This time, we've thought about how we can make the connection between the food on our plates and what we see on farms, in forests, and in fields all around the world. We've heard about the issues of exploitation facing growers who live off international food markets, and heard interesting ideas to give them their fair share of proceeds. And we've looked at how conservation and sustainable use can go hand in hand, allowing communities to continue using resources they've relied on for generations without depleting wild populations and biodiversity. The innovations we're seeing around the world leave me with so much hope that we can continue to find smart ways of uniting conservation with livelihoods and to adapt our farms and businesses to climate change. But it wouldn't be possible without the amazing work of scientists and the willingness of communities and farmers to embrace new ideas and challenge the traditions that may have worked for generations before. The facts we face can be frightening in terms of climate change, extreme weather and food supply. But also, we truly might be living in one of the most important moments of our planet's history. Because if plant science tells us anything, it's that we can learn more and do more and be more then our harvest will be the best of all, 
a healthy, thriving and fair planet. In the next episode of Unearthed from Royal Botanic Gardens Q, James Wong is digging into the foods of the future and asking which ones your grandchildren might not be eating. Follow this podcast on your favourite app and join us then. I'm Poppy Okocha. Thank you for listening.